Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that when Jesus calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Uh, Dear God, help us to understand the penetrating cost of being a disciple of Jesus and help us to see the unparalleled beauty in belonging to you forever. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm wondering what has been for you the most costly enterprise in your life. That which has taken your energy, your time, your money, your love, your attention. If you think about it, is there a person that comes to mind? Is there, can you see a face? Uh, is it your husband or your wife? Is it some friendship? Is it, um, is it uh, a business venture? Uh, is it the fact that you had to move to a different state or you got a different job? Um, I think if you were to ask the disciples that question, you know, what, what's been the costliest enterprise in your life? They would have the same answer. They would say it's the Nazarene. It's when this Jesus came into our lives and, and we didn't really know what we were getting into. But everything was disrupted and, and everything was changed for us. And we lost everything. We lost everything for him. I think that's what they would say. I want to speak tonight about the costly character. It's a sobering sermon, but it'll end well, I promise. Uh, of the costly character of being a disciple, because that's what we are. Uh, you may know that in the Great Commission, from Matthew's perspective, remember there are four Great Commissions, but in, from Matthew's perspective, he says to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that's what we are. We're disciples. We're um, apprentices. We're students of the great Nazarene rabbi. That's what we are. And we gather here tonight to be shaped, in a sense, by his uh, continuing presence with us and his word to us. And, um, and the, the 12 disciples, you know, they were unique in a way. They weren't like us in some ways because they were called to leave family and zip codes and, and familiarity and friends and jobs and to become itinerant preachers in the Middle East. You are probably not called to do that in the same way. Um, remember, there were other followers of Jesus and other people who were who were taken in by the Christian movement that, that didn't change their jobs. You had Lydia who, who worked in, in dyeing cloth and you had a Cornelius, the Gentile uh, centurion, and you had the Ethiopian eunuch who was a servant to the queen. And they all went back to their jobs, albeit with a different perspective and a different understanding of God and Christ. Um, and uh, so the 12 were unique, but what I want to talk about tonight from this passage uh, in St. Luke, uh, what I want to talk about is, is our, our three particular costs that the first disciples paid that are similar as uh, they relate to us as 21st century Christians, uh, 21st century disciples. So I want to talk about Three things that will be costly to us as we follow the great Nazarene. Um, being a disciple involves, firstly, a costly resignation. A costly resignation. Um, if you'd like to follow along, <clears throat> I'll start in verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, 
and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. And then in verse 5, Simon said, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. Okay. So Jesus approaches these men when they were having a bad day. This is a bad day. They had worked all night and they were washing their nets because they're all done. And they caught nothing. Um, they were resigned, in other words, to a day of failure. Work filled with futility. And the language in this passage, at least for me, I can hear echoes of ancient words that were pronounced by, uh, by God. Um, that part of the human condition is that labor becomes laborious. And I think the disciples are in this passage getting a big gulp of Genesis 3. Genesis 3 says um, that cursed, this is what God says about creation that kind of comes apart at the fall when things don't work right anymore. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. That in the fall, work itself, arbeitung, uh, work becomes often fruitless and toilsome. And, uh, and we know this, of course, from our own bitter experience, because we've all taken a gulp of the fall in this way. If you have a, if you have a job or even if you have other forms of work, if you work with a child, right, you spend all this energy and love and attention and tears and prayers on your children and you want them to be fairly well adjusted and, and socially adept to some degree. And you want them to actually believe in God and believe in Christ and have a, an ongoing relationship with God. And you want them to be involved in the church and you do all this work and they don't do it. They're not interested. And, they're, and, and they don't want to talk about it with you. And, and they're going a different direction. And so you've worked all day and you've caught nothing. You know, you've toiled all night and you have nothing to show for it. Or maybe you have this business and you've been working really hard to build this business from scratch and you have this entrepreneurial spirit. You don't always have the follow-through, but you have the energy, right? And good things are starting to happen, but it doesn't get the traction that you want and you're in a bit of a financial bind because if things don't improve, uh, you're going to be in a bad way with the bank. And so you've toiled all night, um, but the, the fruit can't really be seen. Or maybe like you're a professor. Let's just say you teach people. That doesn't relate to anybody here, but let's just say that you're an academic and you pour your heart and soul and all your education and hours of time into crafting lectures that are profound and striking and impressive and important. And then you get people who write evaluations of you, students who don't realize you're a human being, like with feelings, uh, and eviscerate you. And they, do, and they go to sleep at night, and they're fine. And you don't sleep at night because you're haunted by, the, by people that really seem to like hate you and hate what you teach. Now, that's not happened to you, but it's happened to other people that teach. And, um, and it makes you feel like you've toiled all night and you've caught nothing. I mean, you poured your life into this and nobody cares or it doesn't seem like they do. And so that's, that's a big gulp of Genesis 3. And what's marvelous about this passage is the incarnate Deus, right? God incarnate in, in Jesus of Nazareth, um, comes to people who are, who are in the middle 
of this toil. This is fascinating. He comes to their turf, their sea, their boat, their situation, their toil, to these discontented, resigned people, these resigned men who have just had it. And that's the first thing I want to say tonight, that disciples are people. Disciples are people who, have, who are increasingly disillusioned with the world as it is. They're increasingly disillusioned with the promises of fulfillment that um, people tell you about. Well, if you only had this career, everything would work out for you. Um, if, you had, um, if you have this track, um, then your life will necessarily get better because the right sort of situation, the right house, the right job, the right move will fix your problems. And, um, and disciples are people who start to grow disillusioned with those false promises. And disciples are resigned to the bitter reality of a fallen world um, because at the heart of human experience is futility. It's just true. I mean, we, we, we know this, that we're, the game is rigged, you know. The game is rigged. And we're all going to lose, right? But the things that we've built will be taken apart. It's true with our bodies. It's true with what we've produced. I, I had an art teacher once who said, who actually put on a, uh, um, a display of art based on the theme of decay. I mean, there's a real upper. Decay. And that's what it was called. Decay. And, and I said, well, why would you ever? I mean, it's so morbid. I mean, Really? And decay, you're like the anti-Thomas Kincaid. Why, why would you be doing this? And he said, well, he said, because it's true of everything. And I think it's interesting that everything is headed uh, in a decaying direction. And so I wanted to display that. And I thought, well, there, you, there it is. Um, but, but, I mean, we learned this from Jackson Brown, right? All good things have to come to an end. The thrills have to fade before they come back again. The bills will be paid and the pleasures will end. I mean, there's an upper. Uh, and so this is the trajectory of a fallen world and of futility that is now built into the cursed system. And disciples are resigned to this, and we know that this is true. So we, we tend not to live, by God's grace, with illusions that are out there that promise things they can't deliver. Uh, and so, but, but we're resigned to something else as well. There's a costly resignation in that because it's a downer, but we're also resigned to the fact that a better and enduring life in future is possible, but always comes from the outside. It is never self-generated. It always comes as a gift from outside. And that's why um, the Grateful Dead said, I need a miracle every day. I need a miracle every day because I need help that is not possible to be found in the common patterns of life. And so this is what happens in this passage. When they need help, what do they do? They turn to the one who has made this great offer to go back out into the sea and let's try this again. And of course, we know uh, the miracle that is received at that point. And so a, a better and enduring future in life is possible um, outside of our experience, something that comes into our experience from without. So a costly resignation. But there's also in this passage a costly recognition, a costly recognition. Verse 6, and when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. 
Notice there's a recognition here, a costly recognition. There's a recognition, of course, of the Lord. They realize that the man in the boat is not only a, a teacher. He's not only a professor. He's not only a well-learned and studied person who has interesting and at times polemical ideas. Uh, he's not just impressive in what he's able to communicate. That this man has authority over the natural realm. Uh, this is a man who can command the fish of the sea. It's like they know his voice somehow. And so um, they recognize the Lord. But it's interesting, Peter recognizes something else. He recognizes not only the Lord, but his own distance from that Lord. He recognizes after this miracle. I mean, notice he doesn't say thank you. That would have been nice. He doesn't say thank you. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't um, worship uh, he doesn't do a Pentecostal jig. Uh, he doesn't sing, Lord, I lift your name on high, thank God. Um, he, do, he, doesn't, uh, uh, um, he, he, he doesn't offer his house to Jesus. Well, since you've done this for me, let me do something for you. Instead, uh, he, he, he speaks words of, of, that suggest an infinite distance. Um, he is awash in shame, and he says to Jesus, you should leave me alone. You should go, um, because I'm not worth it. I'm not worth it. I mean, if you only knew, God, if you only knew what kind of a person I am and what I carry around with me and all of the dirt that just clings to my soul, if you only know my, knew my story, I mean, you'd get the heck out of this boat. And, uh, and the, um, uh, the situation suggests that Peter realizes that what Jesus embodies and what Peter embodies are separated by a great trench, and there's not going to be a meeting of the minds. And the best thing that could happen for Jesus is to turn away and never look back. So Peter realizes something very deep and very profound and very costly about his own position. It's almost like Isaiah in chapter 6, where he has this vision of the temple and the Lord filling it. And he says immediately, I mean, it's an immediate reflex. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. In other words, I'm not a worthy audience. This just isn't right. This is not appropriate. I'm not, I ought not be welcomed here. And yet what we have in this passage uh, is a um, is a very candid expression of the same thing, something similar to what Isaiah experienced and expressed. And maybe you've known this in some sense. There's a moment in which you've been found out or discovered, a moment uh, wh- where your true self was fully known, and you understand the uh, uh, paralyzing and uh, uh, terrifying nature of exposure. And this is what Peter experiences in this miracle moment. And so disciples are people who recognize a painful truth about themselves, that there is a trench between who we are and who we ought to be, and more importantly, there's a trench between who we are and who God is. And it just can't be bridged uh, by what we bring. And the beautiful thing about this passage is that Peter's pained recognition is met uh, with kindness. Jesus doesn't say, you know, on second thought, you are kind of gross, and I don't want to be near you, and, uh, and you're right. I mean, you're right. Um, Peter, you know, maybe I should call you the rock someday because you're so solid and steady, and so, of course, I should trust what you have to say. Um, no, I thought that was really funny. Um, but, uh, but instead, uh, what happens is Jesus uh, treats, 
he essentially ignores what Peter says and gives him a new identity and calling and says, I don't want you to be afraid. I don't want you to be scared. Uh, But from now on, you're going to be catching something else. You're going to be catching human beings. You'll be catching men. And so uh, this is what happens. Um, uh, There is a costly resignation and a costly recognition. And lastly, there is a costly risk uh, involved in the uh, relationship between disciple and discipler, a costly risk. Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats back to the land, they left everything and followed him. They left everything immediately and followed him. They left their jobs, their security, their families, their friends. Uh, They left them in order to catch something more than temporal, uh, uh, than, than, than that which is temporal. It isn't now about money. It's not about fish. It's about human beings who need to be restored to their creator. And that was now their new calling, their new vocation, gifted to them by this Nazarene. And so they walked away from everything because they trusted. They trusted this rabbi, and they walked away. And what I want to say is that trust, or what we could call faith, always involves a very high degree of risk. Always. And not just with God. It's true with people that you love. But trust always involves risk. And there is great risk in turning to Jesus Christ. And I haven't always emphasized this as I ought to. But you really need to think very thoroughly about what you're getting into uh, regarding Jesus Christ. That if you really trust that he is who he says he is and he can do for you what he said he could do, um, there is a risk factor involved. And um, and uh, the, we can just take Peter as an example of what... Uh, of what the Nazarene does to him and how he really does in some way uh, um, bring Peter to a, a place of greater trust through pain. Uh, he, he deconstructs Simon Peter over time, deconstructs uh, the false uh, self of Peter. You know, you know this because of uh, um, Peter uh, was the one who said first and very bravely, uh, to Jesus, after he asked, "Who do people say that I am?" Peter said, "Well, you're the Messiah." And Peter, um, uh, and uh, Peter, this has been revealed to you from God. Uh, this is a very impressive thing that you've said. And then Jesus goes on to say that the Messiah has to suffer and die. And Peter, all of a sudden, says, "No, that shall not happen to you." And Jesus then calls him the devil. So he goes from lofty Peter to like the antithesis of God within within five minutes. Um, this happens to Peter. He, he um, sails high and then has been and is brought down low. Um, this happens, of course, later um, when um, Peter at the Last Supper says to Jesus, if, any, if everybody else leaves you, I won't leave you. And Jesus said, no, no, you'll, you'll deny that you even know my name. And it'll happen in a few hours. And so Peter makes this bold uh, statement that is, in fact, denied by Jesus. And then um, you may know that Peter is uniquely given a vision um, uh, about the, the inclusion of Gentiles into the church. And then later, he, he becomes a coward and a hypocrite, and he won't even eat with them. 
because he's afraid of the judgment of Jewish Christians. And so he knows the truth and then backslides. And then, of course, there's the apocryphal story, maybe true, maybe not, of the persecutions in Rome. And whenever that's happening, Peter, who was in Rome, is leaving the city and he sees a vision of Jesus walking toward the city. And he says, Lord, where are you going? And he says, well, unlike you, I'm going to go suffer with my people. And then Peter has a change of heart and goes back to the city. Um, But this is sort of the um, a new kind of Peter principle in a way that his trust in Jesus brought him a great deconstruction. His life was taken apart. There was great risk involved for Peter in following Jesus. Um, And yet that risk drove Peter to a deeper trust every time. And so the costliness of being a disciple and the risk involved is beautifully portrayed in the hymn that we sung tonight by William Alexander Percy. They cast their nets in Galilee just off the hills of Brown. Such contented fisher folk before the Lord came down. Such happy, peaceful fishermen before they ever knew the peace of God that filled their hearts brimful and broke them too. Young John who trimmed the flapping sail, homeless on Patmos died. Peter who all the teeming net head down was crucified. And then finally, the peace of God. It is no peace. It is strife closed in the sod and beautifully. But brothers, pray for but one thing, that marvelous peace of God. That there's something about being taken apart, the risk involved in faith, the risk involved in trust. Uh, There's something about it that brings us uh, not a... um, a pharmaceutical serenity, which doesn't last, but a transcendent serenity and solace of the soul uh, that can only be found by belonging to the one who can provide the peace of God. And so I just want to say to you tonight, there's great risk involved in trusting Jesus Christ and being his his disciple. Um, uh, Your ideas will be at risk. Any xenophobic ideas you have or or a trust in power dynamics or hopes in upward mobility or uh, uh, or kind of odd utopian expectations regarding politicians, um, uh, any notion you have of uh, of um, contemporary sexuality, uh, all those things will be thwarted by Jesus of Nazareth. All of those ideas will be invaded uh, by the incarnate God. Um, your money is at great risk. Because he'll be pressing you always toward generosity and giving things away. Um, your relationships will be at risk, particularly the ones that you like, um, that you, you harbor resentment. I mean, who doesn't like to harbor a little resentment? And, uh, and, and to have sort of um, virtual voodoo dolls of people. I mean, who doesn't want to have a virtual voodoo doll? Um, and imagine if it would, were to be effective. Uh, and so you, but you're going to have this voice in your head that says, you know, it's probably better to forgive them. I mean, how annoying is that? Just when you want to, just when you want to target your animus and you can't do it because there's this voice, this Nazarene voice in your head saying there has, there's a better way. And it's, it's, it's going to haunt your inward life because, um, if you know Jesus, you know that everything is known by God and that Jesus is principally concerned with your motives and attitudes. And so the scrutiny begins there. And so there's no escape from the, from the golden eyes. They just see through everything. And so, um, so this is the problem with discipleship. There's no stone left unturned, no inner country left undimmed by the relentless, invasive Nazarene. And this is what discipleship to a very large degree entails. And so far, this sermon has been an entire, it's been entirely a downer. 
And I know that. It's been a downer because I'm talking about cost, real cost, a costly resignation to the way that the world actually is and the help that we need from outside, a costly recognition of who we are in light of who God is, and a costly risk in involving ourselves with the champion of grace. Because free grace will always lead to a costly life. And so um, this is it. I mean, this is the situation. But this is where the gospel comes in. We need a little grace now. The gospel comes in because the result of being a disciple of Jesus is reclamation. Is a truer you. Is beauty. Um, I want to conclude with an illustration that might bring home the point. I have a friend who uh, owned a pottery shop in New York. And um, and she had this uh, beautiful vase that she made, and it was so beautiful that it even surprised her. And she didn't want to sell it in her pottery shop, so she put it on a very, very high shelf. But there was a customer who came in and offered a lot of money for it. And so, of course, she parted ways with it. Um, but she uh, wrote this beautiful devotional based on what this vase, if it could talk, <laughs> would say to the customer about its own experience, which sounds ridiculous, but it's beautiful. And there's a deep spiritual lesson to this uh, as it relates to being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so let me, let me read to you what she wrote. Uh, she said, I pictured the vase speaking to this customer and saying, you want to purchase me now, but I wasn't always this way. And I look really beautiful as you stare at me But a while ago, I wasn't like this. I was ugly, and I was a filthy lump of wet clay in the ground. But this master potter took me from the ground, and he carried me all the way to his shop. And he put me in his hands, and he punched me, and he smashed me, and he wedged me, and it hurt. So I said politely, could you stop it? Please don't mess with me like that. I want to stay this lump of clay. I'm very flexible the way that I am. And I'm really happy the way that I am. But the master potter said, but I'm just starting with you. And then the master potter put me on this machine and he started to spin me around and around faster and faster as I got dizzier and dizzier. And I I, I said in a firmer voice, would you stop it? Are you out of your mind? This is no way to treat me. And the master potter then dug his fingers into me as I was spinning and said, I'm just not done with you yet. And then as soon as I slowed down from this spinning and started to rest, um, the, the master potter shoved me into an oven and he turned up the heat. And then I became louder and I shouted in a bolder voice, I can't take this heat. Get me out of here. But the master potter said, well, not yet. You're not ready yet. Finally, after too long of a time, I came out of the oven a little bit harder and a little bit stronger. And I said, finally, you know, I'm done. I'm a nice shape. And I have some strength in me now. But the master potter started slathering this horrible smelling stuff all over me. And I winced and I grimaced. And worst of all, the master potter put me back in the oven and then turned up the heat even higher. And then I started to scream, you are ridiculous. Have you ever said that to God? Lord Jesus, this is enough. And you are ridiculous. 
and I said, anybody who would put somebody else in an oven like this is ridiculous. And then breathless and furious, he took me out of the oven. And I was so freaked out by that time that the master potter had to put me on a top shelf just to cool down, just to calm down. And I did. I became still and calm and cool. And then the master potter took me over to a mirror and showed me what I looked like. And I was finally beautiful, just beautiful, shiny and strong with a very nice shape. And you, the customer, you want me now. But that's because you didn't know who I was before, what I was before, before all this risk, before all this formation, before all this discipleship. It wasn't the cure that I wanted. But looking back, I am beginning to understand the heart of the master potter, for without him, I could never have become myself. This is the point, that being a disciple will cost us. It will deconstruct us. But it will make us into people who are beautiful because we resemble the Master. We resemble the Nazarene. We resemble the Savior who gave everything away to save us. And so Jesus calls you now by name. He calls Ben, and he calls Colin, and he calls Craig, and he calls Sarah, and he calls Rachel. He calls you by name, and he says, I want you to follow me. But there's going to be a cost. Life won't look the same. But I want you to follow me. And it's the way to become the person that you were always meant to be. And I pray tonight, and I pray in this Lent, that we are all converted to this word. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.